From politics in the pub Newcastle, in collaboration with the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle, this is Politics in a Podcast. The Federal Coalition has handed down its budget for 2021, with Treasurer Josh Frydenberg taking the helm for Australia's economic roadmap to recovery. The budget comes off the back of recession, the ongoing global COVID-19 crisis, as well as the disasters such as bushfires and flooding rains. Significantly, the rhetoric around the need to achieve surplus has given way to levels of government spending unseen since the Second World War. Joining us to discuss the budget and its implications is George Pentanopoulos, a PhD candidate in economics from the University of Newcastle. George, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on. This budget stands out in recent memory for its emphasis on recovery, high levels of government spending, and a willingness to run on a deficit rather than the more familiar rhetoric of achieving a surplus. My first question is, why has the government decided on this course, and is running on a deficit such a radical departure from standard economics? Excellent question to begin with. First of all, for all the listeners, we should start with defining what a government budget surplus or a government budget deficit is. In short, a government budget deficit, for example, means that the government's spending more than what it's taking in in tax receipts, or if it's running a surplus, it's gaining more tax receipts than what it is in its spending. A large part, most people uh, don't stop and consider that a large part of, for example, the government's deficit position in terms of, say, for example, during a crisis, say COVID-19 or the GFC, is due to what are called automatic stabilisers. For instance, we'll start with a small example. Let's say, for example, the budget is exactly balanced. So the government's spending exactly what it is in tax receipts. Because of the COVID-19 crisis, I may suddenly become unemployed. So I may get some sort of unemployment benefit. And all of a sudden, automatically, the government's budget position has moved from being balanced to deficit. So and that's what we call in economics an automatic stabiliser. So in part... Some of the government's budgetary position, in other words, when it's moved into deficit, has been due to the role of automatic stabilisers. In other words, the Treasurer could have sat on a, uh, on a beach in Mykonos in Greece and automatic stabilisers could have done part of the work. You generally find in Australia, uh, so there's been two very recent examples, uh, COVID-19 and the global financial crisis, doesn't really matter what side of politics uh, is in power at the time. Generally, ideology goes out the window very, very quickly when there's some sort of crisis. So we saw that during the GFC where there was a large fiscal response by the government. So that then it was the uh, Labor government led by Kevin Rudd. And now we've seen a very large fiscal response from the Morrison-led government. Essentially, ideology goes out the window because fiscal policy works. It can be targeted uh, at certain individuals in society or certain income groups. So we've seen, for example, the increase in job seeker, um, the introduction of job keeper, which effectively meant that the government uh, was operating as a as a employer of last resort. I would suggest. Um, so we have seen a very very big change 
um, in the government's rhetoric during the period of co during the uh, initial period of COVID nineteen, I would argue. Uh, but since then, the government's rhetoric has changed back to achieving or working towards achieving a surplus. Uh, so, in short, although in times of crisis, the government does throw ideology out the window, regardless of which party, whether that's the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, they do throw ideology out of the window per se and return to what we probably, most people would consider a Keynesian consensus. In other words, a bigger role for the government sector in the economy. Uh, as soon as the crisis is over, we return to which party is basically going to return to surplus first. Josh Frydenberg has emphasised uh, the prediction that government action will drive down employment to levels not seen consistently since the 1970s. How does he plan to achieve this? Again, it goes back to what I was saying before, I guess. Um, part of it will be targeted spending. Um, in terms of the government might spend more, a lot more on infrastructure. To be fair, the Reserve Bank of Australia, even before COVID and just after the GFC, has been pushing for Treasury to spend a lot more on infrastructure spending uh, for the past decade or so. Uh, so part of it is through targeted programs to infrastructure. The other part is treasuries are actually relying on consumption. If you look at most Western economies in the world, uh, we rely heavily on household consumption. So if you look at treasury forecasts for the next two to three years, uh, a large part of, uh, quote unquote, the economy roaring back to life is based on household consumption rebounding. Uh, I don't particularly like making concrete forecasts because they are very difficult to do. There's all sorts of variables which can affect uh, an economic result or economic growth. What I would suggest is purely relying on a bounce back of household consumption is slightly misguided from the government. Uh, but in short, the government is relying on household consumption, targeted spending, um, through infrastructure programs. Now, we must remember as well is that uh, the government's actually targeting an unemployment rate which is consistent with what it thinks is uh, a steady rate of inflation. Um, in economic jargon, that's called the NIRU, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. So, for example, what a lot of economists would, would classify as full employment would be an unemployment of around about 4%. The problem with that is that the Nairu, it's an estimate. So the government's effectively uh, aiming for a moving target, so to speak. Originally, we used to think the Nairu was 6%, then it was 5%, then it was 4%, so we're not really exactly sure where it is. Uh, so, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's fine. Um, does this action and behaviour signal a change in the coalition's mindset concerning economic policy, the role of government in the economy, and has the coalition always been wedded to the idea of economic surplus? Uh, I like to be fair in my criticisms, to be honest. If we look at the way both major parties in Australia uh, use or the rhetoric of both parties in Australia, there's a common reference to, for example, oh, the government's like a big household. 
In other words, in our own personal lives, we like to always be in surplus. So we have our income and we have our outgoings and we always want our income to be greater than our outgoings. If we apply that to the aggregate, so I'll use a simple example. If, for example, I go down after this podcast to the coffee shop and buy a coffee right, for $5 or whatever it is, the person working at the coffee shop is obviously selling me the coffee. The coffee shop will have an increase in sales, which means the employees at the coffee shop will be able to get paid. The employees at the coffee shop will then go to, for example, uh, the pub down the street for a drink after work, and that'll give the person running the pub money, and then they'll in turn spend. So if we all, as households in aggregate, try and save at the same time, unemployment will actually increase. Right? But those, that logic, in other words, if, if all households try and be in surplus at the same time, and that will drive up unemployment. But if we apply that same logic to the government, it doesn't actually really hold. Uh, the government's role is very, very different. It does not operate like a large household. It has a much, uh, much more uh, different role in the economy than what a household does. And it has different tools available to it than what we as individual private citizens do. Uh, so both sides of politics use the rhetoric, uh, the government budget is like a large household or we're going to be maxing out the credit card. That's not to say that the government can just spend indefinitely. There are limits to government spending. One would be inflation, for instance. But the fact of the matter is, is that the government can't actually default on anything in Australian dollars because Treasury has a, and this is a critical point, has a credible lender of last resort. In other words, the Reserve Bank of Australia, which can create currency out of thin air via keyboard. So there's no money printing. Uh, so I guess in many ways, uh, the political rhetoric misguides uh, the public um, and it is crucial for the public to be aware of the economic tools available to the government. And once the public is aware of those tools, then I can guarantee the political rhetoric will change in terms of the way we think about economics. Um, now, in terms of the argument whether the coalition or if, for example, after the next election, um, if the Labor Party wins, uh, whether things will be consistent with what we'd probably call a social democratic Keynesian consensus, my feeling is there'll be more of a role of government in the economy for the foreseeable future for the very fact that what a lot of people would call neoliberalism where we rely strictly on market forces to allocate resources within the economy is really at an end across the world. Uh, I think it was a number of weeks ago the US President Biden, uh, Joe Biden um, in a speech, I can't remember exactly where it was, but he was talking about you know the end of an era in terms of neoliberalism. So we have seen a lot of shifts because of COVID, we have seen a lot of shifts uh, in the rhetoric of policy makers and leading politicians around the world. So there will be some shift, I believe, um, in either the coalition or the Labor Party's rhetoric. Now, how much of a shift that will be, that remains to be seen. 
Another feature of the budget has been the so-called low and middle income tax offset, uh, which has received criticism for offering hardly any benefit compared to, say, maintaining a higher income for job seeker payments. What does the government hope to actually achieve through the tax offset and does it measure up economically? Uh, when we look at, for example, something like income tax, the whole idea of income tax being progressive, in other words, the people that uh, have the lowest incomes pay the least amount of tax and people, individuals or people that have the highest incomes pay, pay the most amount of tax. The whole idea of progressive taxation is that it promotes equality within society. The coalition strategy, if you actually look at uh, the effects of the uh, tax cuts, the income tax cuts, they do ramp up significantly for higher income earners as opposed to low income earners. Now that could be, as we have to face up to the realities of it, that could be a political dri politically driven decision. Um, it could be an ideological one. My feeling is that it's probably both. Um, traditionally, what we'd say more uh, free market economists would believe that if you give tax cuts to the higher echelons of society, then those tax cuts uh, will trickle down to lower and middle income earners. Um, the reality is, and, and there's a huge amount of empirical evidence to back this up, is that that doesn't actually work. Um, so I find it a, a little bit ironic that we do as a collective recognise rising inequality, not only in Australian society, but across the, across the globe, but in terms of action, uh, or practical policy, we tend to be, in terms of our uh, income tax policies, especially from the coalition, it doesn't really represent something that's going to recti rectify that situation. Uh, that would be my opinion. Uh, John Hewson, a uh, former leader of the Liberal Party and a professor of economics at uh, the Australian National University, has given the budget a degrade on a scale of A down to F. Uh, he describes it as, I'm quoting here, predominantly an election budget, having carefully sought to neutralise issues and appeal to political constituencies significant to the re-election of the Morrison government. Uh, George, given what we have discussed here, do you agree? John Houston's a very interesting character. He has changed his rhetoric slightly um, since he has left politics. But leaving that aside, again, I like to be fair in my criticisms. There is a, a, a degree of pork bar barrelling from both sides of politics because that is the, uh, the nature of the beast, so to speak. Uh, that aside, I would agree uh, with Mr. Hewson's statement in that there is a significant uh, degree of, I guess, targeted areas of spending given the political challenges the coalition currently faces. Um, for example, one would be, I guess, the aged care sector. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are some sectors in the Australian economy which have been totally disregarded. One would be the university sector, for instance. So I would agree predominantly with Mr Hewson's assessment, um, but I would also add that both major parties in Australia are guilty to one degree or another um, of, of, I guess, having election budgets. George, thank you much for joining us today.
Thank you very much. Politics in a Podcast is supported by the University of Newcastle through the School of Humanities and Social Science. Music is provided by Anchor, a free online podcast creator. And I'm your host, Peter Hooker. It's been a pleasure having you, and we hope that you tune in next time for more Politics in a Podcast.